Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and said, Whoever reviles their father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father and mother, What would you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. For the sake of uh, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Did uh, Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines and commandments of men. And he called to them, the people, uh, to him and said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when you heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. Let him alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us, he said. Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we pray, uh, we have a, a quick announcement to make. Um, we got notice from one of our missionary partners this morning, uh, Sharonda Feller, Feller, that her brother had a heart attack and didn't make it. Um, so Sharonda will be traveling back to the States for the funeral. There's not a word yet if Jay or Nathaniel will be traveling back as well, but pre, please pray for the Fellers and Sharonda and her family specifically during this time and for the logistics of them, their situation. All right, if you'll join me, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you that Sharonda shares that same hope. We pray that that would give her great confidence and that she would mourn well the loss of her brother. Pray for logistics, traveling back um, to the States. Everything would work out as it's supposed to. Uh, and that she would have a sweet time with her family and they would be able to display the beauty of the gospel in light of death. Allow us as her church family and supporting church uh, to pray for her, to support her, to encourage her during this season. Father, we have much to be thankful for. And one of the things we have to be thankful for are like-minded churches who preach a clear gospel and that we support the ministry of. And so we thank you for Kenny Avenue Fellowship this morning. We thank you for their pastor, Josh Hayward, and the, the ways he's benefited us as a church. We pray for our pastor, Blake, as he preaches there this morning. Pray for the preaching of the word there, that those saints would be built up, shaped into the image and likeness of Christ. We also thank you that they're a, they're a pillar church, and we thank you for the organization of pillar and the efforts they are going to to see church planning um, domestic and abroad, to plant healthy churches that 
have a deep love for your word and have a deep love for one another. Father, this morning we also pray for uh, the church in Ukraine. We pray as the saints there are in the midst of uncertainty, uh, they're under the threat of death, that they would stand strong in the faith. We thank you for the reports that are already coming out of Christians who are taking bold stands for the gospel um, in, in light of the war. I pray that many would come to Christ, uh, that in spite of political turmoil and in spite of a pressing war, that the church would be strengthened. Father, Father, many times we have seen your hand working out in history that when Christians suffer, your church flourishes. So we ask that you would work that. Father, we also pray that you would work out the end of the war. Uh, that you would cause a change in Putin's heart, that you would uh, push back the Russian forces if possible. But if not, we trust your hand. And we pray that the Christians in Ukraine would trust your hand as well, as, as, well as the Christians in Russia. Pray that you would give them clarity um, and, a, and a gospel focus. Father, as we turn our attention this morning to your word, ask that you would speak clearly to us about what your word says and um, help us to have a heart or a, a good heart of self-examination this morning as we look at a text that directs our attention to the heart. Father, we pray these things in your son's name and for his glory and for our good. Amen. All right, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first 20 verses this morning. When I was a kid, we would take a trip every summer to a lake in Oklahoma called Tin Killer. Yes, that's his real name, Tin Killer why we would set our family reunion to be there, I'm not quite sure. It's a wonderful lake, but we would stay in a cabin and we'd be out on the water as much as possible all week long. And one year, I remember when I was pretty young, we'd been there for a few days, and I don't remember if it was my mom or my aunt, but someone asked me, Nathan, have you taken a shower this week? Now, what tipped them off, I'm not sure, whether it was the matted hair or the smell um, but to me, it didn't make much sense, right? I was going to jump back in the water the next day, and that was cleanly enough for me. Uh, but I was told, Nathan, you need to go take a shower. To which I responded quite confidently, it's all right, I can just put on some deodorant. <laughs> Here in our passage in Matthew 15, we find a group that foolishly thinks they can make themselves clean by their own methods. They're rejecting the true washing that Jesus receives and they think that they can wash their own hands and it would be enough. And this morning's passage is a continuation of the conflict that has been brewing between Jesus and the religious elite. And so far we have seen the Pharisees and the scribes instigating Jesus, questioning his every move. But in a few chapters, namely chapter 23, we will see Jesus will become more direct in his accusations and judgments, eventually announcing his public judgments on their self-made, man-made religion. And there's a great irony in this passage, as there are several in his conflicts with the Pharisees. By trying to trap Jesus with their questions, they reveal their own hypocrisy. So Jesus seizes the opportunity 
rebukes the Pharisees and then warns his disciples of the dangers of mere external righteousness. And he teaches them about the priority of internal righteousness. So the main idea of our text this morning and therefore the main idea of the sermon is this. It is possible to appear righteous while practicing a hypocritical religion. It is possible to appear righteous while practicing a hypocritical religion. But Jesus calls his followers to worship him from the heart. And we're going to look at this in three ways. One, in verses 1 to 9, we're going to see that these hypocrites were listening to the wrong word. Listening to the wrong word. And then we're going to see, because they were listening to the wrong word, they became concerned with the wrong problems. And then lastly, they began looking in the wrong place for a solution. So let's look at verses 1 to 9 again, listening to the wrong word. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. See, this group of religious elite, these Pharisees and scribes, they traveled all the way from Jerusalem to question Jesus. This was a long trek, and so it showed the priority that they had. They wanted to see Jesus' downfall. And they waste no time getting right to work. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? And here they think that they've got Jesus dead to rights, owing to the fact that he had not been adhering to the strict religious ceremony of washing your hands before you eat. The prevailing thought was, if you had unintentionally come across anything unclean, well then you could prevent yourself from taking it in by washing your hands. Now this is not some COVID protocol they're forsaking. Their concern is not germs or sickness but their thought of being unclean before God, not being properly uh, positioned to be able to worship God. But Jesus ignores their question of hand washing and gets right to the heart of the issue. Jesus noticed that their grievance is not concerned with the adherence to the Torah or the law, but that their concern is their tradition. For Jesus, the conflict then moves not from a conflict of action. The conflict is not over who's doing what. The conflict is over who are you listening to. The conflict is one of authority. So he questions them with this rebuttal. Why do you break the commandment for the sake of tradition? And then he quotes Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. Honor your father and mother. And then Exodus 21, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw the same principle. Jesus is speaking of the same authority here. But you'll see that when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, 
You remember that he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is not contradicting the law, but he is expanding on it, revealing its true intention. But notice what he does here. He flips it on its head to demonstrate what the Pharisees are doing. For God commanded, for you have heard it said, in other words, honor your father and mother. But then notice what he says in verse 5. But you say. Jesus is demonstrating that the Pharisees are not at, they're contradicting the law by their tradition. And so Jesus draws a clear distinction between the commandments of God and the tradition of men. And so while the law said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, the tradition said, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God. To say that if I come into any kind of wealth, but then I use it for good things, even something as good as temple worship, that they could legitimately forsake caring for their parents. This is a clear contradiction to the law. But because it was tradition, it was acceptable. But then Jesus deals a final blow into verse 6. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Verse 7, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. He identifies where they're looking for authority. They're looking at man's word over God's word. They have made their own prescriptions that are based on the law, but in doing so they have replaced them from the law. No longer is their activity an expression of worship, their actions are a reflection of self-righteousness. And so Jesus then calls them hypocrites and quotes Isaiah. And Isaiah gives us the two outcomes from this type of self-righteousness according to tradition. If you were just going through the motions, this is what it leads to. The first is that of hypocrisy. Verse 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, the Pharisees' motivation was not the worship of God, even though it had the appearance of obedience. Notice the canyon that exists here between the lips and the lips. And the heart. Friends, be warned. It is possible to achieve self-righteousness. To have the appearance of piety and holiness. And this was the greatest rebuke of the Pharisees and their systems. They had the appearance of godliness, but none of the substance. Look back in chapter 6, verse 5 real quick, when Jesus levels a similar claim against them. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Notice he doesn't even call them Pharisees here. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. They're honoring with their lips Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. See, isn't this the same temptation we have in what we might call cultural Christianity? Now certainly, 
the influence and positive benefits that come with claiming a Christian identity in our culture are waning. But those effects are lessened here in Abilene. In Abilene, it is still advantageous to claim the name of Christian. You do not become a social pariah here in Abilene. You do not typically lose opportunities. This is why businesses often advertise themselves as Christians, right? Here down the road, we just recently had, I think it's closed down now, but we had Christian dog training. Because apparently Spot needs Jesus too. But if we are filled with a life of hypocrisy, if our outward actions are not matched by an internal heart posture of worship towards God, then the second outcome is true. Verse 9, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, the second outcome of mere external righteousness is vanity. See, this hypocrisy is the equivalent of worshiping a God of our own design and on our own terms. And that is the meaning of Isaiah's prophecy, that they had elevated their own traditions to the status of divine word. And thus God calls it vanity. In their attempt to please God merely by their external actions, they actually incur the anger of God. Now, to be sure, they receive a measure of value. This is Jesus' point in Matthew 6. Public self-righteousness comes with reward. In their time, and I think in our time too, it came with a position of power. It came with a reputation of godliness. It came with a status of superiority. See, external righteousness is possible, and it comes with certain benefits. You can profit much by acting the part. But at what cost? Jesus makes the cost quite clear in the next chapter. Look at chapter 16, verse 26. Jesus is contrasting the Pharisaical lifestyle with the cruciform lifestyle. Verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? See, we can gain much in this life by acting the part. But ultimately it is vanity. Again, external self-righteousness is possible, but it is bankrupt. And here is the pertinent question that we must ask ourselves. Who are we seeking to please and serve? It is the answer to this question that reveals our heart posture. Are we seeking to serve ourselves, to meet our own ends, to benefit ourselves? Are we seeking the worship and honor of God Almighty? See, we in America, and particularly Abilene, are quite good and quite adept at dressing up our self-righteousness and calling it Christianity. The problem with self-righteousness is that it is submissive to an authority other than God. For some of us, our self-righteousness is defined by ourselves. We decide for ourselves what is the good life. And it is therefore that we become our own judge. However, there is a second form of self-righteousness that is quickly spreading through the modern church. It is a self-righteousness that is described by the culture. If you haven't noticed, there's a lot of opinions in the world about how the church ought to operate. There are a lot of opinions about how the church ought to behave. There are a lot of 
opinions about how the church ought to believe and to teach. And unfortunately, too many of our churches and Christians are trying to display their righteousness to the world based on the world's standards. But the problem with both of these, self-righteousness defined by ourselves or self-righteousness defined by the world, is we fall into the same pit. Both of them are the same error. We have replaced the doctrines of God with the commandments of men. We are submitting to an authority besides God's word. And so we must stay held fast to God's word. God's word will shape our hearts so that this hypocrisy is not noted among us. Now, bear this in mind as we walk through the rest of this passage. This passage does not deal with the quote-unquote sinners. This passage deals with the righteous. And we'll see in a minute where this mere external piety leads. And so here, in our sin, we find common ground with the Pharisees because we too have listened to the wrong word. And therefore, we become concerned with the wrong problems. Look at verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Here we see explicitly the distinction between the concerns of Jesus and the concerns of the Pharisees. Jesus explains the true source of defilement. In other words, what makes you unworthy to enter into God's presence. It is not something outside of you that can be brought in. Unfortunately, it is something that is already inside of you. We have seen time and time again where Jesus directs our attention past the external and to the heart. And we know this is the way that God rightly judges us. You might remember in the anointing of David, that Samuel is charged with going and finding the next king. And he goes and he looks at Jesse's sons and he's convinced one of these will surely be the king of Israel. And then God says, no, it is not one of these. And so they bring out the scrawny shepherd boy and he is anointed. But the reason that Samuel can't identify David as the king is because of what God says to him in 1 Samuel 16. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now let's be clear. This isn't to say from this passage that Jesus is unconcerned with external acts. Quite the opposite. He's much more concerned with them than we could ever be. But it is the priority of attitude before action. Intention before movement. Heart before hands. And we see that clearly here. It is what comes out that defiles a person, that makes us unworthy to enter God's presence. Now this isn't to say that simply if we kept all of our sinful attitudes and bents bottled up that there would be nothing to judge. Jesus has already made that clear. We saw in the Sermon on the Mount the centrality of the heart. That if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. That if you have lust in your heart, that you're guilty of adultery. 
and on and on and on. But Jesus is saying, what comes out is a revelation of who you are. More on that in a minute. But his disciples come up to him and they say, don't you know that you've offended the Pharisees? Now this doesn't seem to be an accusation. Peter will quickly and I think genuinely ask Jesus for clarification on his parable in a minute. Rather, I think this is where the disciples are beginning to observe the clear distinction between Jesus and the Pharisees. These are two different paths. In fact, the word here for offended in verse 12 is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11.6. Turn back there real quick. In connection with John the Baptist, he says, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus will use this same word in Matthew 13, 57, where uh, this prophet is not loved in his own town. He has offended the crowds. In this way, we're seeing, lived out in live and living color, the principle that, G, uh, that Blake laid out for us about Jesus last week. That you've got to do something with Jesus. He's not unavoidable. That our response to Jesus is of utmost importance and eternal consequence. The phrase here is the same word that we would have for a stumbling block or a rock of offense. He is the immovable object placed before all of mankind to whom we all must respond. The options are to be either offended by Jesus or to be offended by the Pharisees in their system. And this is not a small thing. Jesus describes the stakes here in verse 13. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. The Pharisees and their followers are clearly described as being not from the Father. And Jesus is picking up on the language he used back in 13 where he describes the, the harvest. Now be careful to notice here. These blind guides, these plants of the enemy as Jesus has described them earlier that will be rooted up in divine, in divine judgment are not the outright pagans. In fact, Jesus makes clear that he would rather deal with idolaters than hypocrites. It is the hypocrite who distorts the glory of God. See, we often think that the greatest danger to the church is the atheist or the Muslim. Or maybe we think the greatest danger to the church in Ukraine is Russia. No, the greater danger to the church is the hypocrite. See, Jesus spends his ministry reaching out to sinners and tax collectors so much that he's called a friend of them, which praise God he is. But his strongest rebukes and announcements of judgment are for the self-righteous. And this is why we want to take so seriously our understanding of our responsibilities for one another, of caring for one another well, because there are areas of our hearts 
which we have to readily confess, can only be described as hypocritical. And maybe, maybe they have just gone so long ignored that we're used to them by now. But we need other brothers and sisters in our lives through the work of the Spirit, under the preaching of the Word, to help us root out any hypocritical nature within us. It is by that that the Lord purifies His church. So we must self-examine. And we must examine one another. See, in our concern for our own self-righteousness, we build a system of faith that is defined by us. And in doing so, we blind ourselves and we tragically lead others in the same way. And notice here the stakes, right? If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So instead... We ought to align our concerns with Jesus, not primarily on external things, but on internal things. This was Jesus' admonition to us from the Sermon on the Mount, that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, which means what? Internal heart-level righteousness. And this is not achievable by external action. And in this way, we must be careful. It can be really tempting to prescribe good things in the Christian life that can easily take the place of ultimate things. So we must be cautious of our own prescriptions, not fearful of them, but aware that religious activity motivated by anything other than the worship and glory of God is an abomination. This was the problem with the Pharisees. They taught as doctrine the commandments of men. And this, friends, is why we teach doctrine from the scriptures. We don't seek to come to you week after week with good ideas on how to do the Christian life. We seek to come to you and open the word and let, uh, let it set the agenda. Because if we listen to the right word, we will then become concerned with the right problems. This was the problem with the Pharisees. And this, friends, is why we submit to the revelation of God. Because it opens the eyes. It widens the heart to the glory and majesty of God. And it is when we believe the Bible, it is when we believe what Jesus has come and done, that Jesus becomes not a rock of stumbling, but a rock of refuge. This is what makes the words of Jesus such an issue here because he removes the foundation from the pharisaical system and he leaves us in a dilemma offending both the party and power and their followers. If internal cleansing is what I need, if I need to be cleansed from the heart and I can't do that by works of the law, then how could I ever hope to escape the judgment of God? Those who trust in this system are left broken. As Isaiah puts it, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. And they shall be snared and taken. 
But then Peter will pose a question to which Jesus responds that we have been looking for a solution in the wrong place. So notice the flow here. If we listen to the wrong word, then we become concerned about the wrong problem, and then we begin looking for a solution in the wrong place. Look at verse 15. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus responds to Peter's question with extreme clarity. He bookends his response with the same idea. It is not what goes in that defiles a person. To eat something, even with unwashed hands, creates merely a physical effect. The, the language Jesus uses here is actually quite graphic. You might even have a footnote on verse 17 that says the translation could include into the latrine. See, Jesus is emphasizing the mundaneness of eating with unwashed hands. Now, to be clear, all you kids out there who are about to go home and challenge your parents with, Jesus doesn't care if I wash my hands, it's not, certainly not the point that Jesus is making. In fact, Jesus is more concerned with our cleanliness than we are, but in the right priority. See, even in the New Covenant, Jesus did not leave us without an ordinance that didn't physically depict the washing that Christ provides. That's why we practice baptism. It is a physical sign of the true washing that is accomplished by the Spirit after faith in Christ. But here, baptism is the key point. That washing is what we require, but it is not accomplished by external action. We're looking in the wrong place to determine our relationship with God. Just as we saw earlier, we judge ourselves by our external merits. We look down at our hands and we say, look at what I've done. Look how clean my hands are. I've washed my hands with church attendance. I've washed my hands by being an exemplary employee. I've washed my hands by leading my family in family worship five times a week every week this year. I've washed my hands by regularly giving through the ch to the church through the auto-withdrawal function on the app. And for good measure, I even put a little lotion by volunteering in the church nursery. But in focusing on our hands, we're prone to develop tunnel vision. And the blind spot is that of our hearts. This is why Jesus sandwiches his key point in the middle here. It is not what comes into a person that defiles. It is what comes out. Why? Because the sickness is on the inside. Now how did the Pharisees miss this? How did the disciples miss this? They missed it because they could only see their hands. They had no ability to see their hearts. And Jesus makes clear that true defilement is a product of the heart. That the sin, our sin nature is on the inside. And so thus he makes this list that can be dubbed the fruit of sin. For out of the heart 
come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Those of us who are so satisfied with the cleanliness of our hands might be shocked to see the defilement of our hearts. Something on this list might cause you a bit of discomfort. Something on this list likely describes a portion of your heart. This is the outworking of sin which infects us all. It is the product of the fall, but it is a product of our own making. And however righteous we may appear, the appearance, even on a thought level, of this attitude, action, thought, is evidence that there is sickness to be dealt with. And it is here that our passage closes with a prescription or a a, a diagnosis of the disease. Now, thanks be to God, this is not where Matthew finishes. And so what what are five takeaways that we can take from this passage? The first is do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It is possible to blind yourself to the sickness of your heart by focusing on your good deeds. It is of utmost importance that you consider your heart. The danger is that of the Pharisees to be so concerned with the good things that have been prescribed to you by man to be unaware of your own blindness. And so ask yourself, what is your motivation for doing godly things? Why do you come to church? Why do you come, or why do you read your Bible? Why do you claim the name Christian? Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, that there will be many who claim the name Christian that he will say he does not know. So do not become so focused on your outward actions that you fail to consider your heart and your internal motivations. Now that may seem like an impossible task, and in part it is. It takes supernatural help, and that's why our second second takeaway is pray to the Spirit. It is by the Spirit through the teaching of God's word, that we have awareness of our disease. See, the Spirit of God, His work is to convict us of sin, even sin that we have so well hidden. So pray that the Spirit would reveal your own self-righteous tendencies. Pray that the Spirit would help you to identify those sins that defile Pray that the Spirit would draw your affections to the proper solution. Not to wash your hands, but for Him to wash your heart. And then pray that the Spirit would then compel you to move your hands in righteous obedience. See, it is not a, we're not neglecting our outward actions. We just want them properly oriented from the heart. So do not be deceived. Pray to the Spirit. Number three, remember the promises. If you're a Christian, a sermon like this, a text like this, can be discouraging. It can be hard to hear. Because we easily see our own hypocritical nature. But if you are in Christ, 
If you have put your trust on him, then you have been given the promise of a new heart. You have been made a new creation. You are being sanctified by the Spirit. These are promises you can rest in. Not to lead you to inactivity, but to compel you to greater effort in your pursuit of godliness. Often I will hear Christians speak about their sin as though it is unavoidable. It is not the case. We have been promised by God that we would not be put in situations where there is not a way out of temptation for the Christian. You might even hear language of, well, I'm just a sinner. No, brother, sister, you are not just a sinner. You are a saint, saved by God, being redeemed by him, one day to be glorified by him. In Christ, your deepest nature is no longer that of the flesh, but of the Spirit. We live in this already not yet reality, already being sanctified, but not yet glorified. And by remembering the promises that God gives to his people, we can not only own our sin, but we can quickly be reminded that Christ owns us. And so remember the promises that are in Christ. Number four, and maybe the most key from this passage, we must get to the heart. Because we are filled with the Spirit and then joined with the body of Christ, we have the mutual task of examining each other's hearts. Let us be unsatisfied with talking about our mere external obedience. In groups, you can develop the habit, I've been guilty of this myself, to only ask about external acts, right? Did you read your Bible this week? Did you practice family worship this week? Did you avoid temptation and sin this week? These are good questions to ask. But if we simply survey the surface, we will never address real problems. So we ought to ask heart-probing questions. Ask about intention. Ask about motivation. Ask about desire. What did you want when you became angry with your spouse? How were you encouraged or convicted by corporate worship? What were you trying to avoid when you told that lie? What do you want with this opportunity? How is your heart responding to this trial. Friends, if we don't get to the heart, we won't address real issues. We must get to the heart. And number five, have faith. If our external righteousness does not earn the favor of God, then what can? It is our faith in the righteousness that is provided to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. At the risk of ruining next week's sermon, I believe this is why Matthew includes the account of the Canaanite woman next. This woman certainly would not have her own self-righteousness to lean on. She was a Gentile, for goodness sakes, from the area of Tyre and Sidon, which if you remember from our passages earlier, Jesus used these as an example to condemn the Pharisees. And yet she comes to Jesus and she humbles herself even to the point of calling herself a dog 
to express her faith in Jesus. And then look at what Jesus says to her in verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Do you see the relationship here? She has faith in Christ and therefore Christ honors her desire, honors her heart's posture. Jesus is willing to give her what she wants because at a heart level, she trusts Jesus. And that is where the Christian finds their home. Understanding that we cannot please God. Our external actions are but filthy rags before a holy God. We are in need of alien righteousness. Righteousness that comes from the outside and then changes us from the inside out. And this was accomplished by the obedience of Christ. His active obedience on this earth in obedience to the Father. And then his substitutionary death in our place, to bear the burden that our external acts have incurred. By our actions, we, like the Pharisees, have incurred the anger of God. But with our faith in Christ, we can have his favor, not by our actions, but by his. And in doing so, putting our faith in him, the resurrection life begins now, from the heart. And so trust in Christ Have faith and trust him to change your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We ask that you would give us to self-examination fueled by the Spirit. That we would do well to consider our heart level motivations and intentions and desires that we would see what we really want and at those points where we find what we really want is something other than you humble us cause us to repent turn us from our own path to your path Father, I pray for those in this room who have not ever trusted in the name of Jesus. I pray that they would see that their greatest need is of heart change. To be brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Save them, Father. And I pray for the believers in here. I pray that they would develop a spirit-fueled motivation to root out sin. And that we would do that with one another. Help us to listen to your word. Help us to be concerned with the right issues, the right problems. And help us to look to you as the only right solution. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.